0: Welcome to the Tuesday Night IBS podcast. I'm your host, Johanna Ruby. The podcast connects patients and providers with information and education about the diagnosis and treatment of IBS and related diagnoses. Each month, we feature a new episode with guest experts in the field of motility and neurogastroenterology who share the latest science and data for diagnosing and treating these conditions, as well as conversation about their impact on a patient's quality of life. Just a reminder, the information provided in this podcast is for informational and educational use only and should never be substituted for medical advice. Always work with your doctor to diagnose and treat your IBS symptoms effectively. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Tuesday Night IBS Podcast. I'm your host, Johanna Ruddy, and today I am very excited to welcome our April expert guest, and that is none other than Dr. Douglas Drossman. Um, many of you know Dr. Drossman as a pioneer in the field of motility, as the founder of the Rome Foundation, as a, a clinical expert, as an educate, educator, as um, the founder of the benefits of communication between patient and provider, but not. Many of you can call Dr. Drossman also your mentor and your friend, and I'm so lucky to be able to do both of those, and to welcome him with us today as we talk about neuromodulators and their use and benefits in treating IBS and pain and other DGBIs. So Dr. Drossman, hello.
1: Hello. Thank you for that accolade. Do we have time for the podcast now?
0: (laughs) Well, I saved your 300-plus page CV for later. That'll be a whole podcast on its own.
1: Anyway, always great to work with you. We have become quite a pair, educating (laughs) the public on these topics.
0: (laughs) I know. We're like the Laurel and Hardy of IBS and (laughs) DGBI. Um, So thanks for being with us this month, and thanks for the great Twitter chat that you uh, hosted with us on this past Tuesday, the 12th. If if any of you listening did not get a chance to participate and see that thread, you really should log on to Twitter, to Tuesday Night IBS page, and look at that entire thread of information, some really good information. nuggets of wisdom from Dr. Drossman on using these drugs to treat these conditions. So do look at that, but we're going to have our conversation about the same topic today. So Dr. Drossman, let's start first, maybe by just Simplifying it a little bit and describing what neuromodulators are—typically um, called something different: antidepressant, anti-anxiety, antipsychotics. Why are we calling them neuromodulators? Why did the name change?
1: It started with Rome 4. We felt that that was the time to make the change. It was also the time that we changed the term functional GI disorders to disorders of gut-brain interaction. And the reasons are very clear, I think. It's based on the science of what we're talking about. Neuromodulators are medications that modulate the brain-gut axis. We don't use antidepressants and antipsychotics because it's stigmatizing. These drugs were uh, were, were started in the 50s and 60s to treat those conditions like psychosis, anxiety, depression. So that's what they called them. But, but these medications have multiple purposes. And we know that independent of psychiatric disorders, the drugs have effects on GI pain, on bowel habit, on regulation of nausea and vomiting and the like. Uh, and it's catching on, I would say that we now hear most everybody at conferences talking about neuromodulators, not psychotropics or antidepressants.
0: Yeah. I, yeah. It's actually really cool when you go to some of these meetings and you see so many of the things that Rome pioneered, these new terms, brain gut axis, as a mainstay of how to educate patients on these conditions and then disorders of gut brain interaction, changing that from functional GI. And you start to hear that in every single lecture and every um, every resource and manuscripts. It's pretty cool to see the influence that Rome and the, the leaders of Rome have had on the field in that regard.
1: And, and also the biopsychosocial model or the biopsychosocial yes. approach. I mean, that was first coined by George Engel in 77 but it really didn't pick up in its, its use until recent years. And I think that the, the GI neurogastroenterology gastroenterology community has, has embraced that.
0: Yeah. Uh, Dr. Drossman, can you talk a little bit about how you became interested in using these drugs to treat patients with these symptoms where, you know, what, what's was the science and the the impetus behind you thinking gosh let's really start looking at this cuz you also authored a working team report several years ago um highlighting the data behind the use of these medications can you talk a little bit about that
1: sure well first of all my training was in GI and psychiatry psychosomatic medicine and that's when i was began to be introduced to the medications but i think uh it evolved through my own practice of over time seeing more and more complex patients with chronic GI symptoms, chronic pain, and psychiatric comorbidities, uh, abuse and trauma. Uh, And it got me looking at a population where the usual GI drugs just didn't work. And I was familiar with them and I started to study them more. And back in the early 2000s, we got the first NIH grant looking at an antidepressant and irritable bowel syndrome. So it took off after that because I just started to get more familiar with the psychiatric and chronic pain literature and began to teach it. And by virtue of practicing it, we started to do more research in it. For example, the use of Seroquel uh, was, was a study we did in uh, 12 years ago but now, people more and more people are writing about it. So, just it's just being there in the beginning, and teaching it and writing about it.
0: Yeah, that's that's great. All right, so um, let's let's talk a little bit about the different classes of medications. Um, so, can you describe the different classes and and what receptors they work on?
1: Okay, we'll start with the antidepressants. Um, The antidepressants are the most common uh, that are used, and there are three main classes. Um, Now, antidepressants work by affecting brain-gut pathways in terms of pain modulation. It affects descending inhibitory pathways via the gate control pathway. Uh, It also affects motility uh, and can also, to some degree, reduce Uh, incoming afferent signals going from the enteric nervous system through the spinal cord to the brain. Finally, it also works on psychiatric comorbidities like anxiety and depression, uh, but sometimes not in the doses we use. We may have to go to higher doses. Now, of the classes, the tricyclics are the one everybody's most familiar with. Um, it's It's a medication that we call a dirty drug because it works to control pain through noradrenergic and serotonergic pathways, mostly noradrenergic, but it also has antihistaminic and anticholinergic effects. So we have problems in higher doses uh, with some of these medications because they can cause the side effects of dizziness, orthostatic hypotension, constipation, sicker syndrome, dry mouth, dry eyes. And the literature fortunately shows that you can get away with lower doses, uh, uh, anywhere from 25 to 100 milligrams. We used 150 milligrams in our NIH study because there is some level of dose effect. Um, People are concerned about the use of the these medications, but I'll come back to that to that later. So that's the tricyclics, and it can be helpful for abdominal pain, irritable bowel, particularly if there's diarrhea because of its anticholinergic effect. Right. The SSRIs are equally effective for depression, but not effective for pain because they are pure serotonergic. They don't have noradrenergic activity. So we would caution against it. Some people think all antidepressants are the same. Um, it has a, an added benefit for anxiety by its ferritinergic effect. So sometimes we, if it's dominant anxiety, we might consider an SSRI or combine it in low dose with a tricyclic. The SNRIs are the latest to come in probably about 15, 20 years ago. Uh, and uh, that medication is purely serotonergic and noradrenergic. So you have, you have the benefit of getting pain uh, control without the side effects. Uh, There is a side effect of nausea that can occur. And about one in a thousand can get a hepatitis-like picture, Uh, but that is usually not something we would often see. So those are the main uh, antidepressants. Then there are what are called the quaternary agents like Neanserine and Remeron, Mirtazapine, And those are complex, very much like tricyclics, because they have multiple alpha-adrenergic, neuroadrenergic, serotonergic, anti-muscarinic, and antihistamine effects. So it can act a little bit like a tricyclic, but it has other receptor activities that make it somewhat benefit for nausea and appetite. However, the side effects are problematic, particularly for young women who are concerned about weight consciousness, because it can increase appetite and cause weight gain. Um, There are other antidepressants, but I think those are the main, main ones. And we can go on if you want to the anti-anxiety and anti-psychotics.
0: Yeah, let's, let's talk about that because we know that a lot of patients do have, you know, anxiety comorbid issues. So can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. Let me also mention that we came out with a study recently in collaboration with Ben Nelson, who's a mm-hmm. GI fac- young GI faculty, Lin Chang and Wendy Lebret at UCLA, where we surveyed a couple of hundred gastroenterologists. And what we found was the greatest comfort level was with the tricyclics, mm-hmm. because that's really what they were uh, taught. Um, right. The problem is that most of them are doing very low doses like 10 and 25, which doesn't afford benefit in many patients where you need to go higher. The other thing we found is that their familiarity, or at least their use of SSRIs were almost as good as tricyclics, but it drops when you talk about SNRIs or antipsychotics. Or or, or why, ant- why
0: is that? Or is it just a, a lack of familiarity and comfort?
1: Yes, we we actually asked them that. And, and there are concerns. Uh, one of the top concerns was, I'm not comfortable using it, and I'm worried about the side effects. And I think underneath that is also the concern of how to communicate it to the patient, because patients right. receive, if you don't do it properly, and that gets into our communication skills training, right. if you don't do it properly and you sound defensive or, a little bit uh, non-direct, uh, then patients won't take it or they'll yeah. say they're taking it and be non-adherent.
0: Sure. And that, and we'll talk about how to communicate the use and rationale of these drugs um, in a little bit. But can you go on to talk about the antipsychotics as well?
1: Well, the antipsychotics, we have to keep in mind, there are two real generations. The first generations are um, phenothiazines uh, haloperidol, and these 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 drugs really you needed a psychiatrist to do it because there were some pretty significant side effects, particularly anti Parkinsonian uh, akathesias, dystonias, and things like that. But the second generation um, antipsychotics like olanzapine, aripiprazole, quetiapine, risperidol. Those are medications, Zyprexa. Those are medications that have, they're called atypical because they're not, they don't typically give the dystonia. It's very uncommon. And so they can be used more safely. And in the last, oh, I'd say 15 years or so, uh, there's been growing use, particularly from our group originally and then others that these agents can be used for augmentation. Now, let's go back for a second. In psychiatry, when a drug causes a lot of side effects or you can't get benefit, you can reduce the dose and enhance or augment the effect by adding an agent that hits other receptors and they work synergistically to get the benefit you want in psychiatry for depression or anxiety. So the antipsychotics are used to treat depression to augment antidepressants, in some cases even solely, Abilify was one of the first uh, to be used to enhance uh, Prozac and things like that for depression. So what our group did is we borrowed it from psychiatry and said, let's see what happens in these patients with chronic pain. And we published a paper back in 2009 with Mato Grover, uh, who's now at Mayo Clinic and, and others in our group and showed that the patients who were not responding to an antidepressant, either a tricyclic or an SNRI for a month, when we added a low dose Seroquel or quetiapine, there was 50% meaningful improvement in the pain. Wow. Uh, uh, because with, with psychiatry, you're using it for anxiety and depression at higher doses, maybe 200 or more. Keep in mind these antipsychotics The dosing for psychiatry and schizophrenia is 600 to 80 milligrams of quetiapine. For bipolar disorder, it's 400 to 600. For major depression, it's 200. And we use anywhere from 25 to 200, mostly around 25 to 100. So all the side effects that you might hear about, um, not the the anti-Parkinsonian, but the weight gain or sedation doesn't happen to the same degree. So Seroquel is one of the medicines that we commonly use um, if they have refractory pain. It has added benefit of um, anti-anxiety effect. It's marketed in low doses for anxiety. It also has a very potent uh, sedation effect. In fact, it normalizes sleep architecture. People with DGBIs, have sleep disturbance. They have yes. uh, decreased uh, sleep fragment, increased sleep fragmentation and decreased REM sleep. And this normalizes it. That's very different from the hypnotics like Ambien and Lunesta and those men or Benadryl antihistamines and the like. Those are hypnotics. They make you sleepy, but they don't give you normal sleep architecture. And there's evidence that when you, from some studies we did with Ami Sperber in Israel, that when you normalize sleep architecture, the patient's symptoms can get better as well. So that's the atypicals, and we would. So I would choose to use that if we're not getting good traction with a medication, or they're getting side effects. Um, the anti-anxiety agents we don't have a lot. We don't recommend the benzos. Uh, benzodiazepines are very effective anti-anxiety agents, but uh, and this this would include lorazepam or clonazepam uh, or or Xanax, um, alprazolam. Uh, The problem is that for the long-term use, they do have um, uh, effects when you mix it with alcohol or other sedatives or other medications. There's a risk of seizure with withdrawal. Um, So I tend to use benzos in an acute situation. If someone's having an acute anxiety attack uh, or if they're anticipating going on a flight um, or something like that. Uh, However, the azapurones, which in our country, busperone is the only one, um, is an anti-anxiety drug used in psychiatry, which has mild benefit for anxiety, but we've been using it as uh, an augmentation agent, just like in psychiatry, you might use Seroquel. So I sometimes use busprone as an augmentation and because it has 5-HT1 serotonin benefit, serotonin enhancing benefit, we use it in conditions like functional dyspepsia. We can talk about that later, but it can relax the gut.
0: Um, So would busprone also be of benefit to chronic nausea and vomiting syndromes or would you use something else?
1: Generally, not be prone. Um, okay. I, I would okay. use uh, I, first of all, when we talk about nausea and vomiting, we have the acute treatment, right. which is right. the Fenugren, the antihistamines, mm-hmm. and then also um, we would uh, we would go with um, Zofran, dynasty. Right. Um, but for chronic, if you have someone with chronic nausea and you've eliminated other conditions, or even if you have chronic nausea due to another condition, mm-hmm. you can use remeron, mirtazapine, and you can also use olanzapine, zyprexa, because that agent, similar to quetiapine, but it has added benefit for treating nausea. We've seen that in uh, cancer chemotherapy patients.
0: Interesting. Okay. So let's talk about case presentation. So a patient comes to you, the scenario is that they do have high levels of anxiety moderate depression, phobic features, along with chronic pain and um, diarrhea symptoms. What are you going to do in terms of neuromodulator um, management?
1: Well, for primary treatment, um, using one drug, uh, we could go with Remeron if the pain is not that severe because it has anti anti-diarrheal effect because of its anticholinergic, and it has antiemetic effect. Okay. So that could be one medication that we could use as single therapy. Um, and then we would follow them, maybe treat them anywhere from 15 to 45 milligrams, we would be watching out um, for sedation. But paradoxically, in higher doses, it actually the sedation improves. Uh, we would be watching um, for weight gain. Uh, mm-hmm. But anyway, that would be the one-stop treatment. Now, if anxiety is very dominant and there is still very dominant pain, uh, again, uh, Remeron can help anxiety also, if I didn't mention that. Right. But if we, if its pain is dominant, I would go with either a tricyclic or an SNRI. And we might start it first to see what happens because the anxiety could be in part related to the pain and the distress. Right. Or it may be a comorbid feature that you have comorbid anxiety and depression and it won't work. And in that case, I could do one of two things. I could use buspirone as an augmenting agent, which has an anti-anxiety and it augments the pain benefit. Or I could use an atypical agent like Abilify- or Seroquel, um, or Zyprexa, um, I, would, I would use a vilify if, I generally would go with Seroquel if they have sleep disturbance, but if they're having uh, no sleep disturbance and they're concerned about weight gain, I would go from the, the penes, olanzapine and quetiapine, to the ols, which is aripiprazole and brexpiprazole. We may be getting far afield from what a lot of people feel comfortable comfortable with, right? But, but I think uh, it's it's important to learn about these things, and I think we're finding people do more and more of it. Uh, maybe that we can give them access to the uh, if they ask you to the neuromodulated grand rounds that we did where we covered some of this.
0: Absolutely, and and to your working team report as well. Um, what about functional dyspepsia? Uh, Obviously, you know, Jan Talk has published on using neuromodulators to treat functional dyspepsia. Um, what would be the best approach there and, and dosing as well?
1: Uh, he has been a pioneer in this. It's, it's a yeah. complicated area because we have two conditions we have PDS and we have EPS.
0: EPS yeah.
1: PDS is more meal related, you eat you get bloating, fullness, early satiety, and that's probably because through the brain gut axis, the food in the stomach sends a signal to the brain, which causes what we call receptive relaxation, where the tone of the fundus diminishes and it relaxes and becomes more flexible. With PDS, it doesn't do that, and it stays tight, your volume stays tighter. And you get more uh, tension, wall tension, and that produces these symptoms of early satiety. So that's PDS. We'll come back to that. EPS is more of a chronic pain situation, a visceral hypersensitivity situation. And EPS is generally unrelated to meals. Uh, mm-hmm. It can't be worsened with meals, but it's generally over uh, unrelated. And those patients may respond to, well, first of all, when you diagnose the condition, you wanna make sure they don't have H. pylori. If they do you wanna treat that, only about 10% benefit, but it's something you can do and it lasts. Then if you discriminate between PDS and EPS and about 40% overlap, but if if you're looking at pure EPS, you might try an acid blocker, blocker like a PPI first. And if that doesn't work, then we would use a neuromodulator, which would be a tricyclic or an SNRI, not an SSRI. Uh, the data from the Mayo Clinic, which was a, a multi-center study, showed that um, the SSRI used, I think it was Prozac, could have been Celexa, I think it was Prozac, showed no benefit over placebo. But uh, the antidepressant, which I believe was Desipramine, did show significant benefit over placebo in the pain scores. But not in the motility component, the PDS component, more with the pain component. Okay. Now, moving over to PDS, those people don't traditionally have pain, unless right. it's an overlap. And, and with their their condition, they're getting bloating early satiety. And then we look at the work that Jan Tak has done, um, which is to try to treat the receptive relaxation, and buspirone is a serotonergic 5-HT1 agonist that increases receptive relaxation. So these patients in his study show um, uh, improvement in early satiety and fullness and bloating sensation. Um, Now, mirtazapine has also been shown to work, he published one study showing benefit in patients who lost weight and they gained weight back and had reduction in their dyspepsia scores. Not quite sure why we think it may be a central effect, uh, but but it does have benefit for that. Now, if the patient has significant nausea, this may be a marker for them having delayed gastric emptying. So clinically, most of these patients do not, and I re- reemphasize do not have delayed gastrochemptine. And there's not a good symptom marker for delayed gastrochemptine, except for nausea. And if they have nausea, then I would do a gastrokempting study. And if they are showing delayed gastrochemptine, we could look at a prokinetic agent in addition, uh, which could be meta- uh, metaclopramide, which I don't favor, or Domperidone, Domper- which I tend to use, uh, even though it's not available in this country. Um, so I think those are the, okay. uh, eryth- yeah, right. could be used as well.
0: All right. So I'm going to go down the list of disorders, DGBIs, um, maybe just give me one or two of your suggested drugs to treat. Um, so caps, you, you know, we've already talked about chronic pain, but caps, you said, um, quetiapine, olanzapine, anything else?
1: I go with Cymbalta, Okay. Uh, or, or I could try a tricyclic, but I've moved away from it. Um, I have some patients on tricyclics if they have IBSD, and they're not—it's not severe. But if you really want to push dosing, I, I would go with with uh, Cymbalta as as the main medication. Um, I I could use desipramine in high dose, and then I would usually augment it with quetiapine, Seroquel. Um, There have been other situations where I've augmented um, with even an SSRI if there's a a large uh, anxiety component.
0: Okay. Uh, What about functional bloating? Um, You mentioned buspirone. Would you use a TCA for functional bloating?
1: Yes. I, I, I think you can, functional abdominal bloating, the first thing you want to do is, why are they having it? Uh, could it be related to uh, constipation, for example? Uh, if they have constipation, we wanna treat the constipation. I wanna see if the bloating gets relieved with a bowel movement. Uh, and then if that's not the case, then we could use something like buspirone. We would use rifaximin, which Thanks. has been shown to be effective for abdominal bloating. If this bloating is associated with what we call abdominophrenic dystinergia, where they're not only bloated, but they're distended. Yeah. And if, if it's particularly related to a meal, um, let me qualify that. The patient who has abdominal bloating and distension that begins after a meal and then goes away an hour or two later is the one most amenable to treat with these neuromodulators. So what we're trying to do is treat the bloat. What happens if the patient eats? The eating triggers the bloating sensation, which is visceral hypersensitivity, and then sends back a signal to the brain, which causes this paradoxical descending of the diaphragm and the relaxing of the rectus muscle. That's abdominal phrenic dyssynergia. And the most success we've had is using neuromodulators which could be tricyclics or it could be uh, uh, an SNRI agent. We sometimes do use Effexor as well, uh, but it has to be in high doses. I didn't discuss that, but but generally Effexor has to be over 200 milligrams to see benefit. And what you're doing is you're raising sensation threshold because if you ask patients, they may say, well, I get this distention and it makes me bloated or they say it happens at the same time. But what we think is happening is the bloating sensation is the signal that goes to the brain, that leads to the brain to respond. It's a viscerosomatic reflex.
0: So then the muscles relax in the the abdomen. It
1: it makes the rectus muscle relax. Mm -hmm. So it it just, the stomach, the pressure causes it out and the diaphragm comes down. It's the opposite of what should happen with a meal. The diaphragm stays up and the rectus tightens. But it's one of those brain gut, hard to understand conditions.
0: Yes. And so there impactful been, on patients too, like very psychologically impactful.
1: It's huge. Um, it's It's been around all these times. I mean, I remember as a, as a resident, seeing patients sending pictures of their abdomen and not knowing what's going on.
0: Yes. Because
1: we thought it was gas and we took an x-ray and there was no increased gas. And that's one of the educational features for patients. We may demonstrate by taking an x-ray when they're most distended that it's not gas because it's a difficult concept for patients to really understand. Um, okay. The other thing we try to do is we try to reduce autonomic t- tone, which may feed into this abnormal reflex by doing diaphragmatic breathing. So that we're using that for rumination, for supergastric belching and for abdominal phrenic dysenergy. Okay. Um, so that's how I would treat the bloating. Uh, you know, if it's bowel-related, lower bowel, treat the constipation. If it's IBS with bloating, try rifaximin. If it's more of an upper gut abdominal phrenic try a neuromodulator and look at diaphragmatic breathing. And of course, with all of these, we could look at behavioral interventions as well, such as brain gut therapies.
0: Right. What about Globus? I know it's not that, not as prevalent as say IBS, but it's still very impactful. Um, How, I I know there are, are I've read one paper looking at neuromodulators to treat globus. How would you approach
1: that? Globus means ball, right, right.
0: Feeling that really you, you have a ball in the back of your throat, right? Have you ever
1: have you ever experienced that?
0: Well, yes. Um, so you know. It, I I like to equate it to a similar analogy that you made when you feel yourself, start to cry at an emotional moment and you get that sensation of this, like something stuck in your throat. Um, It's, I've known patients who have had it and it's, it is very anxiety inducing as well. It kind of gives them a a bit of a scare that they're going to choke or that feeling of not being able to swallow completely. It's quite frightening when it happens.
1: Yeah. So Globus, um, anyone could experience it, it's the sensation of suppression of strong emotion like crying, mm-hmm. which makes it a kind of a psychophysiologic kind of response, doesn't it? Right. And, and of course, my training with Engel was also psychodynamic. And we we had cases where we would really uh, quotes unroof the underlying dep- sadness. Uh, and was able to just make the make it go away. These days, it's much more behaviorally oriented, but it does help us understand the pathophysiology of the symptom. There is some type of motor tension that develops. Um, patients do worry that they can't swallow or there's a disease there. And of course, they go to ENT or they get endoscoped or get an x-ray, and there is no problem. And one of the helpful educational features is to say, but you can't swallow. Swallow is <laughs> not affected by this. Globus is between when you're eating and drinking. And right. that provides some, some value to them. And then you can do um, uh, a pH, not a pH, but motility study to, to show some be- some effect. But basically, we're looking at you can use a neuromodulator as a way to help reduce it. Uh, I would use a low dose. Could use a tricyclic or something like that. Um, but in, and, and then the brain gut therapies to try to get right. an idea of what are the causes. If if the patient can accept that it's a stress-induced phenomenon or it's related to emotional dysregulation or sadness, then the treatment is goes real easy and we see good benefit. If yeah. the patient is um I don't want to use the term alexithymic, but if they don't see the connection between this happening and saying there's something there. I know it's being missed. They're they're not amenable to treatment with therapy, and they may be more. You may try a neuromodulator to see if that benefits. But it doesn't deteriorate. It's not harmful, mm-hmm. um, but it is one of the conditions that we look okay. at.
0: All right, let's segue over into communication. Um, we know that it's really critical. Um, that providers communicate the rationale for these medications in a proper way. So what would be your recommendation on how to approach a patient um, who you think would benefit from using a neuromodulator? How would you approach that conversation? And what key points do you want to emphasize that every provider um, be aware of in that conversation?
1: It has to be individualized. The first point is there's a total spectrum of how patients see neuromodulators. So the first thing I do in the history is I determine what medications have you been on. And I go through their list. And if I see that they've been on an antidepressant, um, and I say, What did you get that for? And how did it, what effect did it have? Tremendous amount of information I'll get out of that. If they say, well, I've never been on one, but I've read about it. Is that something we could try. My approach is going to be very different sure. as opposed to, oh, yeah, the doctor put me on a tricyclic and look, I'm not crazy. And right. And, and within one half hour of taking the first pill, I almost died. And then you're dealing with nocebo effect. Your approach is going to be entirely different with that patient. Right. So you want to get an idea of the spectrum. I might also learn that the patient was on a medication uh, like Cymbalta or Desipramine before for mood disturbance and it helped them. So I know that they don't have any toxic side effects from it and they got to adequate doses. And right. then I can then, so then when we get through all of that, I'll usually provide some level of feedback If they're coming to see me, they're usually not doing very well. And they've been to a lot of places. So I will echo back. This has been a very different and provide some empathy. This has been a really difficult experience. You've been around the block, seeing many doctors. I don't, you don't, it doesn't seem like you've got the benefit you want, which is why you're here. I'd like to try to help. Um, What are your thoughts about what I can do? and you know they may say something i want a magic drug or something like that um i'm getting them into the dialogue it's a way of engaging them so we're we're talking together about the problem which makes it easier to talk about solutions if they're looking for some miracle cure we haven't been there we're not engaging so again this is this is the training and communication skills you you learn how to understand where the patient is, where their head is, and how they're thinking about things, and move them into a dialogue that brings us to the direction we, w- we really want to go. And right. so, then with that information, I could talk about, I could then bring up, well, there are treatments that can be used for chronic pain. Uh, let's just say that's chronic pain. And this is in the class that we know called neuromodulators. Do you know what that is? We get into that dialogue. If they say no, I'll say, well, it's been used in the past uh, for psychiatric conditions like antidepressants and antipsychotics. But nowadays, we know that these brain gut disorders, and I, I would have already discussed that with them, yes. Right. these brain gut disorders respond to these medications. We know it can treat pain. What are your thoughts about that? And I take them through a kind of sequential dialogue. If I see some, let's say resistance or questioning, I then respond at that point. And the kinds of information I wanna get across, which most people bring up, I don't want something that controls me. No, this will not control you. I don't want something that'll alter my mind. Well, when used in psychiatry, it moves it to the better but it's not gonna make you do things that you don't wanna do. Uh, In fact, we can look at this with the insulin theory that if you have diabetes, you're given insulin to replace the chemical that's missing. And with depression or, or pain, we're using this medication to improve the neurotransmitters in your brain and your gut so that it can bring you back to a more normal state. It's not habit-forming, and I would also say that we even use doses lower than treating the psychiatric conditions. And you've talked about how much it's affecting your life and how stressed you are from it. It can help reduce emotional stress, even if you don't have a psychiatric disorder like anxiety or depression. And if you have a psychiatric disorder, that's up for us to decide, then would treat that as well. So those are the kind of the key words that I might use.
0: That's great. And if any of our listeners would like to learn more about how to communicate effectively with their patients on this topic, a variety of other topics, including other treatments. Uh, Dr. Drossman and I have a lovely uh, curriculum for you that you can purchase and uh, learn from more of his wisdom with some really great videos that are patient vignettes and his guidance step-by-step on what was done properly and what um, areas could be improved upon to help you learn step-by-step step how to do this in your clinic with your patients too. Um, so any final words, Dr. Drossman, on the use of these drugs for providers or on the benefit of them for patients who are listening?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think we should consider from the study we did with Ben Nelson and Lynn Chang, that people are not using it for two reasons. They're not trained to do it and they feel a little bit anxious about using it because of the risk of side effects and how to communicate it. And all of that is learnable now. Yeah. And we're seeing more and more people in neurogastroenterology, in particular, or people who are visiting my practice will go out and use these agents. I had one GI fellow say to me, you know, it's amazing that these really are safe medications. We use things like Remicade, which are more toxic compared to what we're doing here. Uh, and so I, I think this is something you can learn to improve your ability to take care of patients with more complex problems.
0: I completely agree. And as a patient who's taken them and found tremendous benefit, I think that, you know, providers not being willing to learn how to use them properly is is a uh, ill-service to their patients because many times these drugs can really provide the relief that patients are looking for and haven't been able to find with other treatments. So it's really to everyone's benefit um, patients in particular, that providers get more comfortable with using these drugs in my humble opinion.
1: But well, would, would you share what you took and what it did?
0: Sure. So I, uh, I took Cymbalta, um, to, to address my abdominal pain, my chronic pain, but it not just, uh, address the abdominal pain, but it addressed the widespread, more fibromyalgia type pain that had developed over, you know, 10 years of this illness, not being treated. Um, and, and, you know, also had some mood effects, some anti-anxiety benefits as well, that I wasn't even aware was, uh, existing and driving some of my symptoms. So overall, I had a a tremendous benefit um, and response to it. I highly recommend it. Um, and I know many of your other patients who you have been on neuromodulators or on them now find tremendous benefit as well. And, and relief from the symptoms that have been plaguing them for so long. So, I mean, the, the data is clear and the evidence of patient response is quite clear as well. I just think um, we need to just continue to spread the word and educate providers on how to use them and feel confident on how to use them.
1: And, and you can see that evidence not only in Johanna's story in the first book, but our new book. You want to say something about our new book and our patients?
0: Yes. Book? So Dr. Drossman and I uh, didn't have enough to do in our free time, decided to write a second book, uh, parlaying off of our first gut feelings disorders of gut brain interaction and the patient provider relationship. This one telling the story of patients, patients telling their own story really in their own words of their illness journey. Dr. Drossman commenting on his approach to their care as their physician and I commenting from a patient advocate perspective. And this book Called Gut Feelings, the Patient's Story is coming out, uh, going to be available for pre-order starting on Monday and will be available uh in your hands on July 1. So we're very, very excited about this book. And uh, do you want to say a little bit more about it?
1: Um, we had some real benefit when we when we sent out the first book. We had a webinar for for people who bought the book. And we're gonna be setting up one for the first 100 people who purchased the book. And it's not only Johanna and me, but it's gonna be the eight patients who'll be available to answer questions about their uh, illness experience.
0: It's a really powerful book. Each story is very unique. Each patient is unique and, and comes from different backgrounds, different ages, different experiences different diagnoses. Not all of them have IBS either. Um, and so it's a really interesting uh, journey through each patient story and how their care was approached by Dr. Drossman and the lessons that the patients learned throughout the process, both good and bad. So good takeaways for patients on how to approach their care and great takeaways for providers on how to treat their patients with these conditions. So we're excited about this book and more to come on that. Dr. Drossman, always a pleasure to see you and chat with you. Thanks for joining us again this month. If you have questions for Dr. Drossman, let us know. We'll pass them on. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
1: Nice meeting you. I've heard so much about you.
0: Oh, I know. I know. Long time listener. First time fan. Um, So we will see you next time. Don't forget to join us in May. And the um, topic will be looking at um, some of our digital therapies and that are coming onto the market and how they can be a benefit to patients with these conditions. Until next time, everyone, take good care. Bye now. Join us again next month for another episode of Tuesday Night IBS, and be sure to follow the conversation on our Twitter page at hashtag TuesdayNightIBS. We host live Twitter chats on the second Tuesday of each month at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern time with our monthly guest, and encourage you to join in the conversation. In addition, check out our page on Facebook at Tuesday Night IBS and find video presentations provided monthly by our guest experts to further guide our learning and conversation about these important topics. See you next month.